He pulls over. She gets in the back. Tells him the destination. He had, he's heading out. A few minutes goes by, and after some silence, he says, you know, sister, we probably have similar journeys. It may not seem like it, but we have some similarities. He said, I, I too, am Catholic, and like you, I, too, am single. And she said, well, we do have some things in common. And uh, quiet for a few more minutes, and he said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but and I'm not quite sure I'm going to tell you this, but I, I just feel like I should. You know, I, I, I've always had the desire to kiss a nun. And he said, I, I guess I, I shouldn't say that, but somehow I feel comfortable with you, and it's just been something that's always been down deep in my heart. I've always wanted to kiss a nun. And she said, well, I'm sure it's, it, it's something that goes back real deep from your childhood, maybe some rejection, you were emotionally scarred. She said, I can understand that. She said, why don't you just pull this cab on over? And you get back here with me, and, you know, I, I believe I'm supposed to fill that need. He, he can't believe it. He pulls the cab over. He gets in the back seat. He plants a big, juicy kiss right smack on the lips of this nut. Can't believe he did it. Gets out of the back, gets in behind the steering wheel, takes off. They're driving a few more miles. It's real quiet. Finally, he says, you know, uh, sister, I, I've got a confession to make. I haven't been forthcoming with you. And I've, I, I need to tell you this, I, I'm, I'm not really Roman Catholic, I'm a Methodist, and, and I'm not really single, I'm married. And the nun said, well, that's quite all right, I need to make a confession to you. Uh, like you, I'm not Catholic either, and I'm not a nun. My name's Bruce, and I'm on my way to a Halloween party. <laughs> What you have there are two people without principles when you analyze that story. I'm not sure you want to analyze that story. <laughs> but if you take it apart, that's a story about two people without principles. Uh, whenever behavior is based on an absence of principles, you got a problem. you got a major problem. Uh, we are in Nehemiah, and we are in Nehemiah chapter 5 tonight. Uh, the context of Nehemiah chapter 5, if you've been with us, you know that they've been rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem, and they have encountered great opposition to this uh, project, which is designed uh, to shore up the nation after being in captivity uh, for 70 years. Uh, a group returned and rebuilt the temple. Ezra came back. Uh, established the law, and Nehemiah is coming back to rebuild the walls to fortify the city and to protect the city. Um, the, the bureaucrats in the area were not pleased with this, the people in power and the people in authority, and actually threatened to kill them as they took on this project. Uh, up until now, what they have experienced is they've experienced opposition uh, from, from the outside. But what we're going to find here tonight in Nehemiah 5 is that now their trouble comes not from the outside, their trouble comes from the inside. Uh, and this is the most difficult trouble of all. Um, follow along with me as I begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 5. Now there was a great outcry of the people 
and of their wives, that's interesting, against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Some of them are starving. That's what's happening here. And then note the phrase again. And there were others who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Four. Verse 4, and also there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards, and now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and yet we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Uh, you've got some people in a bad way here. Um, suddenly some problems begin to surge and bubble to the surface. And in essence, what is going on here is that you've got, um, you've got a problem among, among a family. You've got a, a problem among the Jews. Uh, in, in essence, what you've got here is that you've got some class welfare. The have-nots are upset with the haves. The haves are living well. The haves are doing great. The haves have more than they need but the have-nots are struggling deeply. Uh, this is sort of an Enron situation here. This is sort of a, um, of a Tycho uh, uh, situation here, where those on the top are doing well and trading on inside information and uh, uh, enriching themselves at the expense of the workers. Uh, on the surface, we could read this and just fly by it, but this is a significant issue quite frankly, that tests the leadership skills of Nehemiah. Uh, interestingly enough, we're going to see the way that Nehemiah responds to this internal dispute and this internal problem. Uh, th this, is, this is where the stuff that comprises the heart of a leader comes out. This is where you find out if a leader is a man of principle or if he's not a man of principle. Now, we all have different leadership capacities and we have leader, different leadership responsibilities. When push comes to shove, and when a crisis shows itself, uh, true leaders fall back on their principles. We're going to see how Nehemiah handles this situation. Um, it, it, it's a it's a pretty it's, it's a it's a pretty uh, significant rift. Um, let me let me break this down for you, just to summarize. Uh, there are several groups. The first group had large families and did not have enough food to eat. That's, that's a critical problem. We're seeing that right now in Iraq. You've got, a, you've got one of the cities there under siege, and that we, we heard about a possible uprising because they don't have the food and the water. Uh, this is always an issue, and, and these people in Iraq right now are dealing with that issue because of a repressive regime. The second group had large mortgages to pay, and... Uh, and, and, and they couldn't buy food. So they're in trouble financially. The third group had large taxes to pay and had been forced to mortgage their land and even to sell their children. If you caught that last phrase there in, in verse 5, they were, it was so bad that their sons and daughters were having to go into slavery. So th this was a huge issue that was happening. Um, there are two things going on here. And, and what you have among the Jews is that you had some people and you had some leaders that were functioning without principle. Um, 
The first issue was this. The haves, the wealthy ones, what they were doing is they were, um, they were charging excessive interest on the money that they were lending to the other Jews. And the second issue was slavery. Uh, one commentator says, it was not wrong for a Jewish person to lend money with interest to a non-Jewish person. That's Deuteronomy 23, verse 19. Nor was it wrong for a Jewish person to lend money to a fellow Jew. However, the law in Exodus 22:25 prohibited in no uncertain terms the practice of usury. You could not lend to a fellow Jew and, and take advantage of them. You couldn't do it. Um, and that's exactly what was happening. So you had some Jews who weren't following the principles of the law of the scriptures that were given to them. These were unprincipled Jewish men in positions of leadership. Then the other issue that you had was the issue of, uh, of slavery. According to Leviticus 25, verses 35 through 40, according to the law of Moses, a Jewish person could hire himself out to someone, but not as a slave. You had two basic principles of the law that had been given to the people of Israel uh, that, quite frankly, it was being violated here. So you had some economic issues. You had some family issues. Uh, you had some catastrophic issues that were happening to the people who were building the wall. It's like this is a timeout in the middle of, uh, of their work and in the middle of their task, and suddenly this bubbles to the surface. Now, what's going to be interesting here is how Nehemiah deals with this. Uh, we expect opposition from outside the camp. Probably the most difficult thing for us to deal with is when opposition comes from inside. That's always the hardest. That's always the most difficult. Um, so much of what we do as men, so much of what we do as husbands and fathers has to do with people. Uh, the people in your family, uh, your wife, your children, they have different temperaments. They have different personalities. They have different bents. And it's your job as a husband and father to, to manage them, to understand them, to get inside their hearts. First uh, Peter 3, 7, you husbands likewise, Live with your wives in an understanding way, you see. How many of you guys have daughters at home? I'm just curious. How much is in the Scripture? How many verses come to your mind in the Scripture about how to raise a daughter? Can you think of any? I can't think of any. If you've got a daughter at home, um, where do you go in the Word of God? How do you know how to... Lead that, that daughter. How do you know how to lead her? I, I, I've got a, a theory, and here's my theory. My theory is, is that your daughter probably one day will become a wife. You guys following me here? This isn't tough logic. Just give her a few years down the trail of life, and the chances are she's probably going to become somebody's wife. I, I have a theory, and my theory is this. The scriptures that tell men how to treat their wives are scriptures that instruct us on how to treat our daughters. Because you see, she's just a wife in waiting. How in the world is she going to know when uh, she goes off to college, how is she going to know what kind of young man to look for? Because these young men are going to come into her 
life, how was she going to know how to sort out the good from the not so good? How was she going to know how to sort out the good from the bad from the ugly? How is she going to know how to do that? Well, it comes back to your leadership as a father. Uh, that's why our role is so critical. So it seems to me that in 1 Peter 3, 7, for example, when it says, Husbands, you husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Could we not apply that to say, you husbands love your daughters as Christ? Uh, that, that's Ephesians 5. I'm, I'm getting dyslexic here. Let me go back to 1 Peter 3. You husbands likewise live with your daughters in an understanding way. Does that not make sense? You see, do you want your daughter to grow up and have a good marriage? Of course you do. All right? Then you want her to have a husband who lives with her in an understanding way. In order for her to understand that's what she needs, she needs to see that from you. You're the most significant male figure in her life. See, in other words, what we're talking about is living off of principles. The, the actual interpretation of the passage applies to your relationship with your wife, but the principle would apply to your daughter who's going to be a wife one day. So she should understand that her father attempts to live with her in an understanding way. And then it goes on and says, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. That principle obviously uh, applies to your wife. I think it should apply to how we take care of our daughters. So daughters should feel understood. Daughters should feel honored. And then what happens is she goes off to college, you know, and these guys come into her life, and let's say she's 600 miles away or 1,000 miles away. What she's going to do is she's going uh, to run all these young men. She may not even realize this, but all these young men, she's going to run through the template of her father's example. So some guy comes in and takes, out, takes her out a few times, but he's kind of coarse with her. He's kind of uh, difficult. He's critical. He's going to bounce off the template of your example because that's not how she was treated. Uh, he doesn't honor her. He criticizes her. He's putting her down. He's going to bounce off, off the template of her father's example. Does this make sense? He uh, is forward with her physically. He puts a move on her. He tries to take advantage of her physically. He bounces off the template of your example, and you find out about it and put out a contract on it. <laughs> or take care of it yourself, which would be more appropriate. You see what I'm saying? See, how do you raise a daughter? You take the principles out of the Scripture and you apply them. See, the, the Scriptures are full of principle. When we talk about a principle, we're talking about a fundamental truth. When we talk about a principle, we're talking about a fundamental law. We're talking about a fundamental doctrine. A, a, a principle is an unchanging and timeless truth. Um, uh, John Knox is one of the uh, great men uh, of church history. I've, uh, it's been a while since I've referred to Knox. I want to read a quote that I've read before about Knox, but it's been a while, and uh, and uh, you've probably forgotten this. I forgot about it until I came across it here recently. But Douglas Wilson has written a biography about uh, uh, John Knox. And Knox was a man of tremendous courage. Knox was the man that God used to bring the Reformation to Scotland. There are many who believe that the American Revolution would not have taken place without the influence of John Knox in Scotland. Not as well known as some of the other reformers, but a great man. Douglas Wilson writes this. He says, a certain type of man is always able to trim his sails to suit the prevailing winds. 
and he takes pride in the fact that he is adept at it. He does not know where he is going, but he is making good time. That's a great line. Because everything is proceeding so smoothly, he thinks a final reckoning will never come, but it does. Why does a final reckoning come? Because he's not living on principles. He is a compromiser. He is a pragmatist. He is very practical. He's not living on principles. He's not living on truth. He's living on whatever comes. So he adapts himself to the current. He goes on and says this. Uh, this is the same phenomenon which caused one wit to observe that if the liberals in our Congress were to introduce a bill to burn down the Capitol, the conservatives would counter with a bill to phase the project in over the course of three years. <laughs> you catching what this guy's saying? See, we tend to put people in camps uh, politically liberal and conservative. And uh, I, I, I would be on the conservative side, you see. Oh, oh, yeah. Just, I'm, just, I'm just coming. I thought I'd reveal that to you guys. <laughs> but don't you get frustrated with certain conservatives because they always seem to be giving things away? Why is that? It's because they don't function off of principle. They're pragmatist. He says, when one group wants to drive us over a cliff at 80 miles an hour, it is hardly a pragmatic response to insist on 50 miles an hour. But see, that's how so many people live their life. He goes on and says, Nothing ruins a thriving party of consensus like being hosed down with the ice-cold water of truth. Uh, principle and truth is not real popular in our culture. Uh, yet you can't live without it. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt is another favorite of mine. Uh, in 1902, let me just read this to you. This is a great story. In 1902, during the height of an extremely tense diplomatic showdown with Britain and Germany over their forcible recovery of debt from Venezuela, several key military advisors were summoned to the White House. When they entered Roosevelt's office, they found him furiously poring over his well-worn Bible and an exhaustive concordance. After a long and uncomfortable silence during which the president never acknowledged their presence, one of the generals cleared his throat and addressed the great man, <clears throat> Excuse me, sir, you asked for us? Without looking up from his volumes before him, the president responded, Well, just don't stand there, men. I need help. I can't remember why I hold to the Monroe Doctrine. What was the Monroe Doctrine? The Monroe Doctrine was a doctrine that came from President Monroe years before who said that European powers were not welcome to come into the Western Hemisphere and set up colonies. That's what the Monroe Doctrine was. He says, I can't remember why I hold to the Monroe Doctrine. I know it's got to be in here somewhere, in his Bible. Still not quite comprehending what he wanted them to do, the men moved towards his desk, whereupon the president handed each of them a Bible to peruse. Get to work, men, he told them. I can't act without warrant. I can't pronounce policy without precedence or precept. You see what he was doing? See, he couldn't make a political move until he understood scripturally what his basis was for making the move. Reminds me a lot of Bill Clinton. <laughs> That's what you call a man of principle. You see, he was a little rusty. Now, why do I hold that again? Why do I hold that? So he's got his Bible out, he's got his concordance, and he gets all his military guys in, and he gives them Bibles. 
Let's look this up. What's this now? Where, where, where's our basis? Where's our truth? Where's our doctrine? Where's our principle? That's why he was such a great president. See, great leaders, great leaders lead out of principle. Great leaders lead out of truth. They don't trim the sails just to go with whatever prevailing wind. They don't do this. They don't lead out of poles. They lead out of truth. They lead out of principles. We're at war. Last time we met, we weren't at war. But we're at war now. World War II, a lot of men went off to war. Uh, there were uh, five brothers, the Sullivan brothers out of Iowa. And uh, these five brothers decided that they wanted to serve together. They wrote a letter, and they were granted their request. They were uh, in the Navy, and they were all assigned to the ship, the USS uh, Juno. And uh, that happened in February of 1942. They remained with the ship uh, throughout her shakedown operation and her subsequent combat action. Uh, five brothers serving together. What a neat thing. These guys loved each other. They wanted to fight with each other. They were very close as a family. Uh, tragically, all five brothers were killed when the Juno was sunk on November 13, 1942, off the island of... Uh, Guadalcanal. They were sunk by the Japanese submarine uh, I-26. Uh, it's been written, and I quote here, since their loss, much confusion has resulted from the many myths surrounding both the Sullivan brothers and the Navy's policy regarding family members serving together at sea. Isn't that tra tragic? Imagine how sad that would be. I found, I found a, 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 the letter today on the internet that uh, Franklin Roosevelt wrote to the parents of these five boys that were lost. Can you imagine that? Five boys. Gone. Just like that. He goes on, this writer says, This tragedy received wide publicity in the United States and resulted in a new Navy policy discouraging family members from serving together in the same ship. Why? Now, why would they do that? Was there a principle behind that? I'd say there was a principle behind that. They did not want to put family members in, in the same theater, on the same ship, who could come into harm's way and cause inordinate grief for a family, cause inordinate loss for a family. That was a principle-based policy. Would you guys agree with that? Does that make sense to you? Okay, just, just checking. So I pick up Time Magazine yesterday, and the cover says, When Mom Goes to War. And then underneath it says, this helicopter pilot and her husband are now based in Kuwait, leaving their 14-year-old daughter behind. And the story is about, uh, it's from the perspective of the 14-year-old daughter. Let me just read you a shot here, okay? What does this have to do with Nehemiah? <laughs> it's called principle-based leadership. Um, uh, this... Uh, this girl's name is Lauren. Uh, her mom, her dad, and her uncle Darwin are all in Kuwait, and her Aunt Janice leaves this week. And if the fighting comes, her parents are likely to be the first married battalion commanders ever to fly into battle together. Lieutenant Colonel Laura Richardson commands the 5th Battalion of the 101st Aviation Brigade piloting the Blackhawks. 
that ferry troops into battle. Her husband, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Richardson, leads the 3rd Battalion, the Apaches that provide the protection and the firepower for those same troops. Individually, they are rising Army stars. Together, they are making history in the military with each passing year. Um, that with each passing year becomes, catch this, that becomes more of a family business, the military. More female, speaking of the Army, more married, catch this, more responsible for the children they left behind. I don't buy that. I don't buy it for a minute. And then it goes on and it talks about, you know, after the first Gulf War in which five female service members were killed in action and two taken prisoner. You can thank Gloria Steinem for that. Congress lifted the ban on women serving on combat ships. The Pentagon scrapped the rule that barred women from assignments with a high risk of facing enemy fire. Why? Was that based on any principle? Are you seeing a disconnect between the Sullivan brothers and this? Anybody see that? Maybe you guys don't see it. Anybody here breathing? Yeah. <laughs> see, guys, here's what I'm trying to say to you, is that as our culture, as our culture is evolving and changing so fast, we are making significant shifts. And what happens is there's so many of these shifts and there's so many of these changes uh, they're kind of like a tidal wave that sweep over us, and what we do is, is that we don't think these things through based on principle, we just go with them. I, I want to submit to you, that's very unwise. Do you think, can you imagine 50 years ago, can you imagine the Pentagon saying, this is great, let's get a husband and wife team and let's send them into combat together. And they got kids at home. That's nonsensical. See, I would submit to you that is an example of, uh, of leadership without principle. Uh, making great time, but no idea where you're going. Uh, we've got to live our lives, and we have got to give leadership to our families based on principles and based on truth. Now, uh, what tends to happen is that people forget principle and people forget truth and it's the job of a leader to remind them of the principles. It's a job of a leader to remind them of the truth. Uh, you've got a crisis going on here with the Jews that are trying to get their nation back together in Israel. And, and it's into this situation where you got people starving, you got people, their kids going into slavery, you got people in economic shackles, you got people that are being used to death I mean, you got MasterCard and Visa back here going, what, 20, 25, 26%? I mean, people, and, and, and in our culture, we got people that are in debt, and they can't get out because of usury that's taking place. So it's into this scene, and it's into this arena that Nehemiah finds out. This surfaces at a key point. I want you to note Nehemiah's response in verse 6. Okay? Here's what it says. Nehemiah says, then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I like this guy. This guy's got some juice. This guy's not passive. This guy has some convictions. He sees the situation. He sees the uh, inequity. He sees the injustice, and he gets angry. Do you guys know it's okay to get angry? in certain situations and at certain times. 
there is a kind of anger that's appropriate, and there's a kind of anger that's inappropriate. In the scriptures, there is a righteous anger. He was angry because of the injustice, because of the hardship, because of the e economic deprivation that he saw happening to people by unprincipled men that were under the covenant. He got angry. He got upset. He got ticked off. Okay? I know none of you guys can relate to that. You guys are very docile tonight. <laughs> you really are. Huh. I'm just observing you. I'm just picking this up from you. I think someone put Valium in your ice water on the way in here. Uh, what's that? Well, that can happen to you. You need to go to Fox. Yeah. I got these jabs going here tonight, you know? Um, now, he got angry. All right? We get angry. Now, the danger is when you get angry, you fly off the handle. Uh, the danger is you got the wrong kind of anger. There's a good kind of anger. But there's a wrong kind of anger. I want you to note in the next verse, he says, Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, catch this, and I consulted with myself. Isn't that interesting? Uh, you, know, you know what he did? He got a grip on himself. He just didn't go off half cocked. He was angry, but what he does is he, he, he kind of takes himself in hand. He kind of checks himself, and, uh, and the text says he consulted with himself. Literally, in the Hebrew, it's my heart consulted with me. He just didn't go off half-cocked. He was tethered. Uh, his emotions were tethered to his heart. His emotions were tethered to his mind. Sometimes we get real upset, and what immature guys do is they just, they just go. That's a mistake. In uh, Proverbs 16, verse 32, it says this. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Nothing harder than ruling your spirit, is there? Some of us, um, some of us have bigger issues with temper than others by the fact that we all have different temperaments. Some of us were just born with this, with this temper. Some of you guys uh, know Stu Weber, who pastors up in Oregon and has written some great books for men, Tender Warrior and Locking Arms. Stu's one of my best friends. We've been friends for 30 years. Um, uh, Stu, uh, St now, Stu's a former uh, special ops army ranger. I always say Stu knows 17 different ways to kill you, a and he does. I'm always nice to Stu. <laughs> But Stu's the greatest guy, most relational, gracious. Stu literally has this innate ability. He can walk into a room in about five minutes, he can figure out the guy with a broken heart. Usually warriors don't have that kind of temperament. But Stu is unbelievably strong relationally. But, but you know what Stu's Achilles heel is? Nicest guy in the world. You know what his Achilles heel is? He's got a, he's got a, he's got a hair trigger temper. I didn't know this about him. I'd known him for years. You know, when it, you know when it really came out? When his boys started playing competitive basketball. <laughs> That's when it first, people had known Stu for years. They didn't know, they didn't know he had a temper. 
but he didn't have a temper at home. He was okay. He had, he had a, quite frankly, he'd been, you know, he had some issues when he was a kid and a teenager and all that stuff. But he pretty much, he thought, he thought he pretty much had handled it. Then his boys started playing basketball in junior high and high school. And Stu was a pastor. And then the elder board started getting letters <laughs> from people in the church. And they started getting letters from people in the community. And, and Stu felt terrible about it. As he told me one time, he said, you know, I was watching this game, and the next thing I knew, I was down on the floor. He said, I, I had no idea how I got there. But somebody, somebody had hacked my kid, and they didn't call it. And he was there. They started assigning an elder to go with him to the games. <laughs> this is true. And if Stu were here, he'd tell you this. And he's the greatest guy in the world. Uh, Lindy started giving him, she, she gave him a CD with a headphone thing. And, and she would put praise music on it, and his job was to go to the basketball and listen to praise music as he watched. It didn't work. <laughs> Finally, one of, his, one of his, it was a struggle, one of his best friends said, hey, Stu, you know what? Why don't I go to the games with you? And, and, all, and, and, and Stu would say, when, when I'd start to just play, I just feel this. I just feel this hand on my knee. That's what it was. See, that was his, that was his Achilles. Uh, uh, all of us, to a degree, work on this. Some more than others. But, but you see, you can't let your emotions be out of control. They've got to be tethered to your heart. They've got to be tethered to your mind. So is he upset? He's upset. But he consults with himself. He's got to now think about what he's upset about. So catch what he says in verse 7. And I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers. These were the guys that were oppressing the people. These were the guys who were at fault. These were the leaders who were without principle. He confronts them and says to them, you are exact, exacting usury each from his brother. This is a family issue. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. Huh. Let me give you a principle about leaders. Principled, principled men are men of action. Say that again. Principled men are men of action. This guy sees a great wrong. He gets upset. He consults with himself. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Psalm 119 says, Thy word I have hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. Uh, literally in the Hebrew, my heart, my heart consulted with me. Here is a man of the word. He's upset, but as he consults with his heart, and the word of God is in his heart, you see, he comes up with a course of action. Doesn't go off half-cocked. He makes a strategic plan, and he implements it. That's what he does. He's not fueled by emotion. Catch this. He's fueled by principle. There were two biblical principles that were being violated by the Jewish uh, intelligentsia, by the Jewish North Dallas gated community group, the haves. They were violating two scriptural mandates. He's a man in action. 
he's going to confront them. I talked with a guy yesterday, a guy in another state, a friend of mine, and uh, this guy has been, uh, he's been a member, he's, he, he's attended this church in his hometown for 46 years. He's only 51. He's been going to that church since he was five. And last Sunday was their last Sunday. They're leaving the church. They, they're leaving the church because for the last 10 years, their pastor has refused at any time to deal with some relational and integrity issues that are in the church. Has absolutely refused because he wants everyone to live together in peace and harmony and quite frankly, instead of confronting the situation, brethren, Galatians 6, 1 says, if any of you are caught in any trespass, let those who are spiritual restore such one in the spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Instead of dealing with the situation, he is an appeaser. He leads by consensus, and the consensus is, don't deal with this situation. And this guy was asking me, he said, we decided to leave, what's your take on that? And I said, well, it's not hasty. <laughs> Ten years. I'd say, I'd say you gave it a pretty good shot. And it's with, I mean, the guy's grieved over leaving this church. He loves this church. But there's no leadership that moves on principle. It, uh, this, this pastor, who I'm sure is a good, I met this guy. This pastor is more concerned about offending people than he is about offending God. That's not principle-based leadership. That's not biblically-based leadership. Nehemiah's got a problem here. Uh, what he does is he faces his problem. He calls a great assembly. This is great. He calls a great assembly to confront uh, these high-ranking guys that are taking advantage of everybody. He, he takes them on, and he takes them on publicly. Uh, he doesn't send in uh, inspectors. Doesn't send in more inspectors. Doesn't send in auditors. Doesn't send in more. See, the issue is clear. The facts are clear. So he deals with it. That's leadership. Based on a scriptural principle. You guys still there? Let's watch this guy. Um, note if you would, note, uh, note verse 8. Verse 8 says this, And I said to them, said to who? Said to the powerful men. Said to the guy with money. Um, you know, how, how many times is this true in a church? That the guys with the money... You let it slide. They got money. They got influence. They're doing this. They're, why? Well, they got money. And you know what? Well, I mean, gosh. I hate to be pragmatic, but we need their money. You don't need their money. You just need to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who will meet all your needs according to his riches and glory. You see, this is when we start getting our eyes on people, and we start getting our eyes on on, on powerful people, and we start getting our eyes on their network, and, in, and we get our eyes off God. 
Verse 8, And I said to them, We, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. You understand what he's just said? What he has just said, he says, we have redeemed. He's including himself. Nehemiah has personally, these kids that were sold into slavery, he's taken his own money and he's bought some of them back. That's what he's saying, along with some other leaders. He's stepping up to the plate. He's not asking them to do something that he's not willing to do. He's put his own money and his own position on the line. Uh, we redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sow your brothers that they may be sold to us? Catch this. Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Because he dealt with them off a of principle. They were in violation of the truth. They were in violation of the word of God. Note the next verse. Verse 9, again I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. I saw a book in the bookstore the other day. Remember Dale Carnegie's book, Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? This book was called How to Make Enemies, uh, this book was called How to Make Enemies and Tick the Rest of Them Off. <laughs> Sometimes if you tell truth, that's going to happen. Truth is offensive. You know, in Corinthians, it says that, that the gospel to some is a fragrance from life to life, from others to death to death. Same truth, same principles. He confronts these guys, and he says to them again, verse 9, the thing which you are doing, catch this, is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God? He, 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 he takes it to God. See, this guy, Nehemiah, has a greater fear of God than he does of the powerful men. How about you? Sometimes we fear men more than we fear God. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fourteen times in the book of Proverbs, it talks about the benefits of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is, is a respect. It is a submission to the glory and authority of Almighty God. It's not a terror that, you know, that's not it, that you run around afraid God's going to get you. It's an awesome, and that word is so overused these days. It's a reverential awe of the greatness of God. You fear God. You love God. And you respect God. And you don't want to trample on God. You don't want to trample on His mercy. Proverbs 19.23 says this. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. That's good. Let's do it one more time. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Boy, the fear of the Lord is a great thing. So, you see, here's Nehemiah. He's operating on the principle of the fear of the Lord. This guy's principle-centered. So he confronts the leaders and the big guys. And he said, should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? In other words, what he's saying here, and these guys knew the history. Hey, guys, we just came out of 70 years of captivity because for hundreds of years we didn't fear God and we broke his law. Now, you want to go to summer school on this deal? You want to go through that again? And they didn't. 
Look at verse 10. Look at his example. Principled men lead by action and example. And likewise, I, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. See, he's stepping in. He's putting himself on the line. And then he says, please let us leave off this usury. Uh, Nehemiah is motivated by the fear of God. So he has no fear in confronting those who are powerful. Then I want you to note his steps. I want you to note this guy. This guy, and can I say this to you? This guy is not, this guy's not leading by consensus. This guy's not looking for the approval of the group. This guy's not taking a congregational vote here. Um, cracks me up. Every summer, you have these different church groups get together. Presbyterians, they have their deal. You know, Presbyterian Church U.S., they have their deal. Presbyterian Church of America, they have their deal. All the denominations get together in the summer. The Methodists have got their deal. Southern Baptists have got their deal. They all got their deal. And what they do is they get together and they vote on biblical issues. Isn't that amazing? You don't vote on biblical issues. You don't vote on issues that are clearly delineated in the Word of God, do you? Do you vote? I mean, so the Presbyterian Church's guy, if you're following this at all, they got this big deal about ordaining homosexuals. And they got all these parliamentary and Robert's Rule of Order, and they're all manipulating. Hmm. Nehemiah wouldn't do well in that situation, <laughs> would he? Look at what this guy does. Look at how he deals with the situation based on his principles. Verse 10, here's what he says. He basically says, stop it now. Please leave off this usury. Verse 11, he basically says, do what's right now. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, that's the interest they've been charging, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. First thing he says is, stop it. Knock it off. Cut it off now. Stop the sin. Second thing is, do what's right right now. Over the years, I've heard Chuck many times say, it's never too late to begin doing what's right. Great principle. So you're doing what's wrong? Knock it off. Just knock it off. And do what's right. Refreshing concept. Huh? <laughs> note, note the response of these guys in verse 12. See, you know what I think? I think these guys aren't used to be talking too straight. A lot of people that uh, have uh, power, a lot of people that have privilege, a lot of people that are upper crust, people are intimidated by them, uh, people kowtow towards them, uh, people try to uh, walk on eggshells and kind of discern what they think they want to hear. Don't do that. Don't do that. Tell them the truth. They're just like anybody else. Uh, what did James 
say about giving wealthy people preference if they come into your church. He says, you better not do it. You treat brothers the same, regardless of their economic status. Note the response to these guys. Verse 12, then they said, we will give it back and will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. You know what happened to these guys? They ran into a leader. You know what leaders do? Leaders lead. You don't have to have a political action committee to be a leader. You don't have to have a position or a title to be a leader. We live in the age of synthetic leadership. I've said this before. Synthetic leaders look like leaders, but they're not. They got the persona, they look like a leader, they got the good looks, they're smooth with people, they're winsome, they know what to say to what group and how to do it, but they don't have the guts, they don't have the character, they don't have the core. They're, uh, they're hollow men, they're manufactured men, they're synthetic leaders. Saul was a synthetic leader. David was a real leader. Nehemiah was a real leader. Uh, Nehemiah had a title, but I want to tell you something. Nehemiah did not lead off his title. Nehemiah led out of his life. They tell you about the guy who gave me his business card years ago at a luncheon. Most impressive business card I've ever seen. This guy had more titles in that card. He was CEO. He was, he was founder. He was managing partner. At all his academic degrees, he's BA, BS, MAB, MDiv, THM, THG. Card says over, you flip it over, down the other side. <laughs> I'm exaggerating now. On a single card, I'd never seen more titles, I'd never seen more academic degrees on a business card than on that card. I don't know that guy from Adam. Maybe a great leader, maybe he's not. Titles don't make you a leader. Uh, academic degrees don't make you a leader. You are only a leader if you, what? Lead. And real leaders don't need titles. They just lead. They do what's right. These guys had never run into a leader like this. What he does is he approaches them off the principles of the Word of God. He wasn't, he wasn't coming to these guys with his opinion. He was coming to them with the truth. And you know what they did? They responded and they turned around. Just like in Matthew 18. You know, isn't it interesting how we're so reluctant to do this? Matthew 18. If your brother is in sin, what are you supposed to do? Anybody remember? Go to your brother. How rare do we do that? And you know, most times, what's going to happen is you're going to go to your brother in the right spirit because you care about the guy, because you love the guy, because you're on his team, and what you're going to say to him is, man, you know what? Gosh, you know what? You're going down the wrong course here, man. And he hears your heart, and, and you know what? Most of the time, a guy's going to respond, and you've won your brother. Isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? But what if you hadn't have gone to him? What if you hadn't approached him? Because, oh, what's he going to think? Or what's he, how he's going to react? Or how, that's not your issue. Your issue biblically is 
you've got to take action because you've got a guy that you care about who's in trouble. And if, he's go down, if he goes down, it's going to affect his wife and it's going to affect his kids and it's going to affect the church. See, that's principal leadership. Notice the accountability that follows. They, they say, we'll give it back. We'll do exactly what you say. And then note what happens next. Nehemiah immediately says, so I called the priest and I took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. What he did was he held them to their word. That's accountability and that's leadership. And then he doesn't stop there because he's a leader. He demonstrates to them the consequences if they break their word. This is great. Uh, most of us stop in verse 13. Uh, in verse 12. But in verse 13, he says, I also shook out the front of my garment. Well, he took his robe, he took his, and he just, he just shook it out. He turned the pockets inside, shook out everything in his pockets. And he said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possession who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. That's called the fear of the Lord. See, he brings them back and he says, God, is watching. The eyes of the Lord in every place. You make a vow, you better fulfill it. Because you won't deal with me, you'll deal with the Lord. And, and what was their response? And all the assembly said, Amen, and they praised the Lord. Isn't that great? You, you know something? There's nothing like a godly, balanced leader. That's something to praise the Lord for. Have you ever been in a church where there wasn't a godly leader? And have you ever seen the tumult and the chaos and the difficulty and the vision that comes when someone has a greater fear of people than they have, a, than they have of the Lord? Yeah. But have you ever been in a church, and you're here, so you are in a church, where there's a leadership it's submitted to Christ. It's balanced. It's godly. What, what do the scriptures say? See, that's the issue. Not what people want to hear. What's the latest trend? It's what does the word of God say? You know what? It's the greatest thing in the world. You ever been in a home? Some of you guys were raised in homes, and your dads were just, man, I mean, they just fly off. You never knew when your dad was going to just lose it. But if you grew up in a home where a dad loved you and loved your mom and loved Christ. was under control. Ruled the spirit. Had the word of God in his heart. I'll tell you something. There's nothing better. Is there? Nothing better. You've been blessed by God. Godly, balanced leaders that are centered on the principles of the word of God. Bring peace they bring joy. They build up people instead of tearing them down. And they give glory to God. I love this guy, don't you? Good stuff. Huh? Good stuff. It is good stuff. Because he's a guy who lived on the scriptures. You guys like this? Do you? All right. Go thou and do likewise. Amen. There's a biblical principle for every one of us in this room. That make sense? All right, here's what we're going to do. Let's break up. Some of you guys are new.
But uh, we got some time. I'm trying to watch this time thing so that we don't forget this. Um, we're going to break up in twos or threes. If you're new here, we don't want you to feel out of place. We're glad you're here. There's no pressure, but we want to get two or three together because guys have got needs and guys have got issues. And you know what? Even if you don't have needs, we got guys out there in Iraq that, that are, are fighting our battles for us. We need to pray for those guys. We need to pray for the commanders. We need to pray for their morale. You guys know what I'm saying, don't you? Sir. Okay, good. And they're on, on the table, yeah, that you can get on your way out. That's great. Thanks for mentioning that. But you know what? If you got a need and you feel comfortable, say, hey, guys, would you pray about this for me? If you're not comfortable in praying, just say, I take a pass. We don't want anyone feeling uncomfortable here or feeling pressure. But let's just break up. And if you see a guy there that doesn't know anybody, you grab him and say, hey, sit with us. Let's just break up. Let's take about 10, 15 minutes. Let's pray. You guys all right with that? Let's be men of God. Let's be men of principle. Let's do it. say to you, do not resist an evil person. For whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So how in the world can you ever go to war? Piper says, does Jesus teach, does Jesus' teaching that we should turn the other cheek and love our enemies mean that it is always wrong to go to war? Should the world have turned the other cheek to Hitler and tried to love him into surrender? When Osama bin Laden ordered the attack on the World Trade Center, should the U.S. have responded by sending him the Sears Tower as well? And does Jesus allow a place for both loving our enemies and yet in certain situations using force to restrain life-threatening wickedness? And he talks about the just war theory. Um, and he's going to give several principles here. Here's number one. All right? Pacifism is harmful. That's the first one. Pacifism is harmful. Now, there is a Christian strain of pacifists. Mennonites are pacifists and some of the other uh, groups in that tradition. Uh, the Amish are, pac uh, are, are pacifists. Pacifist. Listen to what Piper says. Pacifism is harmful. To let someone murder when it is in your power to stop them is completely contrary to our moral sentiments. If Hitler is on the move and seeking to bind the world in tyranny and destroy entire ethnic groups, it would seem very clearly wrong not to oppose him with force. It is true that war itself is harmful and tragic, but pacifism will result in even more harm to the world because it would give wicked people virtually free reign. That's all that needs to be said there. At some point, you have to stand up and stop wickedness because of God's character. Okay? All right. Here's number two. Consistent pacifism would have to eliminate the police and not just the military. In fact, if we were to conclude that governments, and I'm quoting here from Piper, okay, just so you know. If we were to conclude that government should always turn the other cheek and never resist evil, then we would be logically committing ourselves to getting rid of not only the armed forces, but also the police force and criminal justice system. For police officers arrest criminals using force against them if necessary and put them in jail. Does Jesus intend his command to turn the other cheek to apply to the police? 
surely not as their primary way of responding to evil. God does not want evil to run about in our society unchecked. That would be Romans 13. They have the right to bear the sword. If one accepts the legitimacy of police using force in some instances, there can be no objection to the military using force in some instances. Luke, here's, here's the next principle. Luke 3.14 allows military service. We already dealt with that. Remember when the soldiers came up to John the Baptist? He didn't rebuke them and say, get out of the army. He didn't say that. Here's number four. John 18.36 acknowledges the right of the sword to earthly kingdoms. I'll let you look that up later. John 18.36. Here's his fifth principle. Romans 13, verses 3 to 4, grants governments the right to use force to restrain and punish evil. We've looked at Romans 13. Now, I'm going to read one paragraph out of here. When it, it goes back to right intentions. He says, governments, of course, do not have the right to use force for any purpose whatsoever. They do not have the right to use force in order to load it over their citizens and impose unnecessary restraints upon freedom. There are two purposes for which this text says the government is justified in using force, the restraint of evil and the punishment of evil. The purpose of force is not just to prevent further evil from happening, but to punish evil acts by bringing the perpetrators to justice. Government is acting as a minister of God when it serves as an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Next principle. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14 confirms the teaching of Romans 13. 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14 confirms the teaching of Romans 13, 3 and 4. Here's the next principle. Is it right for Christians to fight in a war? Since the scriptures teach that it is right for a nation to engage in a just war, it follows it is therefore right for a Christian to fight in such a war. Some have argued that non-Christians may fight in wars, but believers may not, but this distinction is not found in Scripture. Enough on that. Next principle. Church and state must be distinguished. Now, when you hear that, don't think of it in the way that the ACLU does it, because they've screwed it up. Listen to what Piper says. It's important, however, to remember there is a distinction here between church and state. The Christian fights in a war not as an ambassador of the church or on behalf of the church, but as an ambassador of his country. The church is not to use violence, John 18, 36, but the government at times may. He goes into a further discussion. I don't have time to deal with. Nine, what about turning the other cheek? I gotta read this, okay? Because this gets down to the heart of the matter. What now are we to make of Jesus' radical commands in Matthew 5? Do not resist him who is evil. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. First, we need to clarify what the problem is not. The problem is not that Jesus appears to be telling us to lie down and let evil overtake us. That is clearly not what he is saying. Instead, he is telling us what it looks like not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. We've all seen the wisdom of Jesus' words here in our everyday lives. Much of the time, the most effective way to overcome evil is, is by not resisting. If someone says a mean word, it's far more effective to respond with kindness than with another mean word in return. If someone tries wrongly to cut you off on the freeway, it's usually best just to let them do it. If we would learn these principles, our lives would be much more peaceful, and ironically, we, we would be vindicated more often. Stay with me. So the problem is not that it looks as though Jesus is telling us to let evil steamroll over us. The problem is that it looks like Jesus is telling us that the only way we should ever seek to, come, to overcome evil 
is by letting it go and responding with kindness. It looks as though he leaves no place for using force in resisting evil. Would you agree with that? I'd agree with it just from reading the text. Part of the answer to this difficulty lies in understanding the hyperbolic. Where does that come from? Hyperbole. What's hyperbole? It's exaggeration for effect. Okay? I'm starting to lose some of you guys. What he's saying is, is that Jesus was using hyperbole for an effect. Now catch this. There's a, there's a hyperbolic nature in much of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think that Jesus is telling us never to respond to evil with force, such as in self-defense, or always to literally turn the other cheek when we are slapped any more than his command later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 6, means that we should only pray when we are completely alone, or his command in 529 means that some should literally gouge out their eyes. Do you think that's what Jesus meant? If your eye offends you, gouge it out? I don't think so. He was using hyperbole. Jesus himself drove the thieves away from the temple with a whip. That's John 2. And Paul at times insisted on his rights as Roman citizen. Jesus is using hyperbole to illustrate what our primary disposition and attitude should be, not to say that we should literally give in to every attempt to do evil against us. That's part of the answer. <coughs> the main part of the answer lies in remembering that Jesus is speaking primarily to individuals. He is not mainly addressing governments here but is primarily speaking at the personal level. This text then shows what an individual's primary response to evil should be, which is to turn the other cheek. While the other text we have seen, Romans 13, shows that government's God-given responsibility is to punish those who commit civil crimes. So let me ask you something. I know a guy whose sister was stalked by a guy, murdered, and they found her body in a dumpster. He's a believer. His father's a believer. Should they then go out and hunt this guy down and seek revenge? No. But should the government do that? Yes. In other words, there are various spheres of life. God has willed that some spheres include responsibilities that are not necessarily included in other spheres. That, Yeah, well, again, he was talking about the heart. The attitude, the heart. It goes back to what um, uh, Augustine was saying. You know, a guy can be um, loving a child and holding a child. It looks good, but it's not good. It's dirty. See, because the heart. You, you can be disciplining your son. Someone say, oh, that's harsh. You know, actually it's in balance. Because the father knows the situation and knows in this situation that some stern measures need to be taken to try and save this boy's life. All goes proper, down to the heart. Proper action. proper action. But see, the action can be misinterpreted, even though the heart is right. And see, God knows the heart. Where can we find that Piper? The Piper thing, go to desiringgod.org. O-R-G. Desiringgod.org. O-R-G. Um, I can give you the whole address right here. Graham. Great. Okay. 
All right. Okay, great. Did you guys get that at Insight? Insight.org? Yeah, Insight for Living. But it's just, it's just Insight.org. Okay? That makes sense? All right. You guys weren't expecting this tonight, were you? Were you? We've got a marine recruiter out in the hall. <laughs> Back here and then here. Yeah. What's the name of the Piper article? Um, you know what? Gosh, they, they really didn't. It was just posted today. The title is, uh, I'll tell you what I did. Here's how you get that. Go to Desiring God, all right? There'll be a search engine. Type in Just War. I mean, right on the home page. If you start, if you go anywhere else, you're going to get screwed up. But on that first search engine, hit Just War. It's the first article that comes up. Right here, Phil. You know, the thing is, Craig, I was listening to Dobson the other night. I was really angry coming in here. This ties into it. It's when you see that our leaders, especially on the Democratic side, yeah. and you see leaders around, you know, what you're saying here is great, and I'm with it. And yeah. the guys in here are. Yeah. But it's not out there. And right. You look at the, the little evil, and I'm trying to keep cool about this, that's in our government. Right. Yeah. Leaders. I sure. Really am. I mean, I was about the, the whole thing, and I come over saying, God, I'm supposed to love these guys. I said, No, I'm not. I, yeah. I'm going to go write your songs and, and write what David was asking. I said, Rip their throats out. Yeah, they're imprecatory psalms. Yeah. <laughs> you know, some guy, some guy asked me. He didn't like that, by the way. So go ahead. I've had been, you know. I, if I say that verbally, and yeah. actually, even if I'm Christian, yeah. I'm, I, you know, oh man, what's wrong with you, Phil? You're too. Like, you're, you're not loving. You're, well, you're too, yeah, you're too much of a hawk. And I have a real tough time right. with the saying, right. you know, love the sinner but hate the sin. Right. I have a tough time with that. Sure. I think sometimes you don't do that. I'm sorry, right. the sinner needs to be destroyed and forget yeah. that. Right. So, I mean, that's where I'm coming from. So, sure. You're all right, Phil. And see, you're fine. Understand this. Understand this. Most evangelical churches, if, let's, let's put it this way. Most evangelical churches would not want any of the Old Testament prophets in their church. They would not want them. Because they're intolerant and they're not loving. All right, now. We have to be careful. And, and listen, I share your, your um, you know, I, I can get a little fervor going myself. Maybe you picked that up. Um, not tonight. I was cool and calm and totally under control. Um, I'm, I'm looking for a verse. Um, let's go to this guy. I got two guys right here. And then I'll look up the verse. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's good. I think, um, gosh, I, I think how we have to pray, I think how we have to pray is, Lord, um, thank you that you're sovereign. You raise up rulers and you set them down. These godless rulers you've raised up. 
Uh, John Calvin said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. Hey, now let's say this, guys. Let's say this. We, we slaughter how many, how many babies a year? See, we've been praying for little Kate. Uh, hey, on the other floor of that hospital, they're taking 24-week-old unborn babies, and they're cutting them up. Now, thank God we're moving on this partial birth abortion thing. You know, righteousness exalts a nation. Uh, I think we all breathe a sigh of relief because we have Bush in the White House after eight years of a reprobate. Because that's what he was. Uh, so do we, do we pray for these guys? It's hard to pray for them. It's easier to pray for Bush than to pray for Clinton. But, you know, I'd pray for Clinton that, that, that he, would, he would repent of his sin and realize he can't spend God. And, and that God would uh, be gracious to him and that he would open his eyes and ears to the truth of the gospel. Um, but God raises up rulers and he sets them down. So he's raised up these wicked rulers. And he's why? Why did he raise up Sambalat and Tobiah? I don't know. But you know what? That's where you got to just say, God, you're sovereign. You're calling the shots here. You know? So we got to trust him. Yes, sir. Glad shirt. Yeah. Right, yeah. So if, when you don't vote, and we have the opportunity here to vote. So if, uh, if, if you don't vote, then, you know, you're just, you don't have much to say. Yes, sir, back in the corner. Say that again. I heard her. I heard Nagasaki. Yeah. Yeah. Which was horrible. And it was. But how many? How many millions of lives did that save? How many American soldiers were saved? Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Good point. That's right. No. That's right. Yeah, in fact, he said, the soldier said to Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house to heal because I'm a man under authority and you just say the word. And Jesus didn't say, well, you get out from under that authority. Never mentioned it. Good point. Great point. So is it frustrating, Phil? Is it frustrating living in this culture? Sure it is. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where are you right now? Sure. And you know, you're talking about the abortion thing. Here we are fighting it for how many years? Right. And yeah. it, it's just like sure. we're just against this wall. And right. It's, oh man. Sure. It's so frustrating. But as frustrating as it is, you know, God is on His throne. And and. When, when it gets hope, God loves to break into situations that are hopeless. He does. Right? I mean, that's the whole Old Testament. They get in these hopeless jams, and there's no way out, and God prepares, and God makes a way. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what. In the history of Judah, uh, they had wicked king after wicked king after wicked king. 
and, and because of the immorality of the nation, you see. And, but God is so gracious and God is so kind that you'd see a good king here and there. You'd see a Josiah. And I'm grateful we have a president. I, I wish Bush was tougher on the homosexual issue. I'm just telling you. But I'll tell you, I'm so glad we have a president that reads Oswald Chambers every morning. You know, aren't you? That reads the scriptures every morning. We got a reprieve. And God's at work and God's sovereign. Uh, what do we take out of this? Uh, other than we go out and enlist. <laughs> I think what we do is we pray. I think we need to be praying for President Bush. Uh, not once a day. I think throughout the day as he comes to mind, you pray for him. Because he's getting incredible heat, as you know. And sometimes we get overwhelmed, but there are 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. God's got his people. We're salt, we're light. God's got a plan, and the plan will be realized. Are you guys encouraged? There's a biblical basis. Uh, there's a biblical basis for what's going on. And, uh, and God honors righteousness, and God honors right intent. So let's pray. Father, we thank you. That in the we get frustrated, Lord, because we see these foolish people in government. Uh, quite, quite frankly, they're traitors, and and it just it it just incenses us. Um, I, I saw a picture of two demonstrators holding a sign today, saying, "I wish I was French." And, and Lord, we we see that and we and we just get livid. Um, Father, we, we, we say this to you. Uh, we need to be repentant people. We've all fallen short of your glory. Our nation has. Our nation has grievously wronged you. We, we push homosexuality as a normal thing, and young children are being sucked into this uh, wicked lifestyle that destroys human beings made in your image. It's not right, and it's not good. Yet we're told that it is. We take the lives of countless children. And, and Lord, you will not let that go by without dealing with us. But we thank you, Lord, that we seem to have a reprieve. We, we thank you, Lord, that we're, we're seeing a, a turn towards you in our government. And Lord, we don't trust in government, we trust in you. We ask, Lord, that your work would be accomplished. We ask that your purposes would be achieved. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Uh, Lord, you haven't been our God for a while. On our coins you have, but we mock you, we ridicule you in our universities. Uh, we're taking your name out of our pledge. Uh, we, we, we don't want to uh, adhere to your truth. But there's a remnant who loves you and who would die for you. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would encourage us. And Lord, we're mindful that throughout history you've always taken care of your people. Lord, give us opportunities to stand for you. Give us opportunities to declare your word. We pray for our president, giving great wisdom, helping to withstand the pressure, helping to withstand the heat. Help him, Lord, to only be concerned about pleasing you. Help him not to be concerned about a second term. Help him to be concerned about your holiness and your righteousness and your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you. Yes, sir.